0: We are on Yevamos Tzadi Amabey's 9 DB, and we are in the middle on really concluding our discussion on when slash if the rabbis could uh, create laws and decrees that go against the Torah, that the Torah says one way, and the rabbis institute a certain law that says against it, that goes against uh, what the Torah has to say. And so we have two final Cases that we'll discuss to see if if uh, it's actually true. Is it is it true that the rabbis um, could uh, make a ruling that goes against what uh, the Torah says? So just a quick review of what we've had in the past: the different exceptions that we've, different cases, scenarios where the rabbis are in fact allowed to say something, make a ruling that goes against the Torah. There are essentially um, there are essentially four different scenarios in which the rabbis could. Uh, institute something which goes against the Torah. Scenario number one is if it's similar to the, it's not, it doesn't follow the Torah, but it's similar to the values of the Torah, such as having one witness uh, testify that the husband died, uh, that's not found in the Gemara explicitly, but Tos was, one of the classic commentators, explains that in such a scenario, we believe the one witness, even though according to the Torah, we do not, because it's similar to the values of the Torah, Situation number two is if it is passive. If it's passive, so then such as the rabbis instituting that you're not allowed to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah when it falls out on Shabbos, that's being passive. The Torah says to blow shofar. The rabbis say don't blow shofar. So that's scenario number two, as long as you're being passive. Scenario number three is a scenario essentially where the rabbis have the right to change things if it's dealing with monetary issues, as we will also see coming up. Another example of that, but if it's a monetary issue, so then uh, the Torah gave the rabbis the right to transfer money, to take away money, um, and that would work even on a biblical level. And then scenario number four is that the rabbis have the right uh, to say a law which goes against the Torah if it's ultimately for the purpose of, uh, in the long run, in the bigger picture, bringing them back closer to the Torah, um, as we'll see. We'll see another example as well uh, coming up. So we have two more cases, Tashma. this is the case, So the case is as follows, we're discussing a case of a get, a divorce document, so by Torah law, uh, a person gives a get, the, the way it works is that a husband gives a get to his wife, a divorce document, and then they're divorced. Now he doesn't have to give it directly, he could also appoint a shaliach, a messenger to give the divorce document to his wife. On a biblical level, even after he appoints the messenger, the messenger has the divorce document, then he has to give it to the wife. But even if the messenger is away, on a biblical level, the husband, if he's in front of witnesses or if he's in front of a court, he could nullify, he could cancel the messenger and cancel the divorce document to say that no, it shouldn't go through, even though the messenger doesn't know about it. They don't, they don't know about the fact that the husband actually um, canceled uh, the get, the divorce, the, the divorce document, but on a biblical level that worked. The rabbi said that this could lead to a lot of problems, right? As you can imagine, uh, the messenger's going. He gives the divorce document to the wife. The wife thinks that she's divorced. She's going to marry somebody else. Meantime, the whole, and the, and the, the, the whole thing is, is not true. The, the husband, in the meantime, uh, canceled this divorce document. It didn't go through. And she really thinks that she's divorced. The husband knows that she's not divorced. She's going to marry somebody else when she's not allowed to marry somebody else. So it's going to lead to many problems. So the rabbi said, "You know what? Even though it's true on a biblical level that it works, on a rabbinic level, it you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it. What happens if you're not you're not allowed to nullify and cancel uh, the get uh, once you give it to the messenger? What happens if you do not do cancel it? What happens then? So this is the dispute that the gemara just quoted. Rabbi said, since on a biblical level. You're allowed to do it, so then the rabbis don't have the right to say that it doesn't work. In the end of the day, the rabbi said, you shouldn't do it, but if you did it, so then it would in fact work. The husband could in fact uh, cancel the get after he gives it to the messenger. However, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, no, what are you talking about? If you're going to tell me that the husband could nullify the the whole uh, process here without anybody else, without telling it just in front of witnesses that are in front of him, but without notifying the messenger, the wife, uh, so then uh, then what what's the point of making the ruling to begin with? then it undoes it, the entire ruling um and uh, the rabbis really have no power in the end if you 're going to tell me that it's not that it's not uh that it's if you're going to tell me that it actually is nullified that we follow the the biblical law so Ra says at the end of the day, the rabbis have the right to say that the get is not is a good get that you do not have the right to nullify it. ...to cancel the get... ...on a biblical level... ...you do have that option... ...on a rabbinic level... ...they said no... ...it does not work... ...and so this is a big question... ...asks the Gemara... ...you're going to tell me that... ...on a biblical level... ...so what happens... ...the messenger now gives... ...this divorce document to the wife... ...at this point in time... ...on a biblical level... ...it doesn't work... ...because on a biblical level... ...when the husband... ...in the meantime... uh, ...canceled the get... ...so now the get is meaningless... And so, even the giving of the get is meaningless. So, on a, on a biblical level, they're still married. On a rabbinic level, you're going to tell me that they're not married anymore, and she could go ahead and marry somebody else? That's, uh, that means on a biblical level, you're, per, you're making it permissible for them, on a rabbinic level, you're making it permissible for them to, uh, for her to commit adultery, essentially, because she's marrying somebody else. On a biblical level, it's not allowed. How could, how could this work? You're going against the Torah. So, the Gemara says as follows. That's the question. The Gemara says, No! Mand mekadesh mekadesh likidushin. Essentially, as follows: uh, There's a lot to discuss here, but we won't be discussing this at length. But there's a lot to talk about. But essentially, when a couple gets married, they get married based on the consent of the rabbis. In fact, when you give, when you get engaged, when you give the ring, you say Kedas Moshe V'Yisrael, that this should, this is your ring, uh, in which we're getting engaged with. Um, and it should work, Kiddas Moshe well based on the knowledge and the approval of Moshe and, and uh, the rabbis and the Jewish people. Uh, so step number one is that whenever a person gets married, it's based on the consent of the rabbis. The rabbis here, they don't want them to be married anymore because on a rabbinic level, the get is a get. So what could the rabbis do? Afkina Rabbanu and What do the rabbis have the right to do? In the original engagement, when they got engaged and he gave her a ring or any other... Uh, Monetary equivalent uh, of a ring So he gives it to her So originally we interpret that to mean That they're engaged, halachically engaged that's the, that's the step of the engagement But the rabbis have the right to say that No, we don't really believe that you should, stay, you should be married At this point in time And so we're going to now view that original Transfer of the ring From the husband to the wife It's not uh, a sign of becoming engaged It's just a gift It's merely a gift The rabbis have the right to do that based on the principle of hefker, based in hefker, that the rabbis could decide how transactions work. And so too over here. We will no longer view this transaction as a transaction of, uh, of a, of a halachic engagement. We'll view this as just as a matana, as a gift. Um, and so that's what the Gemara, that's what the Gemara says. So when, anytime we're on a rabbinic level, specifically this case, on a rabbinic level, it is a divorce because... He, the husband gave it to a messenger. After the messenger left, the husband now wants to cancel the get. On a biblical level, it works to cancel it, and nothing happened. But on a rabbinical level, we say that, no, it's a good divorce. Why is it a good divorce? How could it work? If on a biblical level it doesn't work, the way it works even on a biblical level is to say that the entire marriage was undone. We retroactively undo the entire marriage because at the time of the giving of the ring, we don't view that as part of the process of the marriage. We view that as just giving a gift. So, Ravashi, Ravina says to Ravashi, I understand if you get engaged with a ring. So, then that's a monetary issue. So, the rabbis have the right to uh, reframe and, 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 and perceive and, and look at the situation differently. It's not one of a marriage, but it's one of giving a gift. Um, but what are you going to do if they get engaged? It's possible to get engaged through bia, through sexual relations. That's another way of coming engaged. So how, how, what are we going to do then? They had sexual relations for the purpose of, of getting engaged. So the Gemara answers a very important line. And also this also requires analysis that we don't have time for. But essentially the rabbi said that no, just, just like they have the right to reinterpret the transaction, know, the transaction, the transfer of the money, of the ring, from the husband to the wife is not for the sake of marriage, but for the sake of just giving a gift, so too they have the right To say that because the entire engagement anyways and the entire marriage anyways is is based on the consent of the rabbis, they could say that when you had sexual relations originally for the sake of marriage, no, it's not true. We will interpret that. We, the based in the court, will interpret that to say that it's not for the purposes of marriage. It was really just for the purposes of having sexual relations in and of itself, but not for the purposes of marriage. And so therefore they were never married to begin with. Whether it's when you give a ring, whether it's when they had sexual relations to get engaged, a halakhic engagement, which then leads to the marriage. Uh, in either case, because every marriage is based on the consent of the rabbis, if the rabbis don't want it, because such as in our case where you gave a get, you gave a divorce document, so then we will retroactively view and interpret the original engagement as not really being an engagement. Either to that you gave a gift, or that the sexual relations wasn't for the purpose of marriage. There's ways for them to figure it out. Now, just to point out, we cannot apply this principle across the board. We cannot say, oh, if there's, let's say in a guna situation, if there's a woman whose husband is away and we don't know if the husband's alive or dead so she can never remarry uh, because maybe he's alive and we have no witnesses, so maybe we should say, no, uh, the rabbis retroactively undo the entire marriage. It would be a great solution. Uh, but uh, this is already addressed by the commentators, and they say that only in this case does it work because you've already started the process of the divorce process. Because since you already wrote the get. You gave it to the messengers. You've already started the process. So then the rabbis have the right to say that retroactively we'll say it's as if you weren't married. But if you never even started the process, so then we can't say for this woman whose husband is lost and there's no way to prove whether the husband's alive or not. Uh, So then we will not say, oh, let us retroactively undo the entire marriage. That we don't have the right to do because there was never a beginning of that process of divorce. Okay, that is all case number one. Now we have case number two. Tashma. He said that there are various scenarios where the court has the right, and they have, punished, even if, according to the Torah law, they shouldn't punish, or they shouldn't get such a severe punishment. The court system did give them a severe punishment, or they gave them a punishment. Why? The, so that there's a siyag Torah, so that there's some sort of fence around the Torah, to teach people a lesson. What are some examples? Case number one is a person was riding on a horse on Shabbos. Now that is not a biblical violation, that's a rabbinic violation. And yet, what did the court do? Because they saw that people were not taking Shabbos as seriously anymore. So then, what did they decide to do? They decided to give this person the death penalty. They have, and they have the right to do that. On a biblical level, you can't give him the death penalty. There's nothing wrong with it. There's not on a biblical level, there's nothing wrong with riding on a horse on Shabbos. On a rabbinic level, it's forbidden. Uh, but still, the rabbis said they decided to, to give him uh, the death penalty. Be, why do they do this? Because so many people were being um were, were not taking Shabbos seriously, so therefore they wanted to teach everybody a lesson. In all these cases, it's really to teach a lesson. The next case as well. What's the case? Case number two is a case where uh, a couple, they have sexual relations in public. They have sexual relations in public. Um, And uh, this is, uh, even though on a biblical level it's not deserving of death, it's a husband and wife, it's not deserving of death, but because it's so inappropriate, the rabbis Decided to uh, give um, give the person uh, malchus, uh, lashes, for what they did. So, how can they do this on a biblical level? None of this is allowed. On a rabbinic level, all of a sudden, they're giving them these punishments. So, the Gemara here answers the same answer that we had earlier, a previous answer, make their milsaw shiny. That in these cases, what's the purpose of doing all this? The purpose of doing this, even though you're violating the Torah in the short term, but it's really for, the, for them to learn a lesson, for them to learn the lesson that you have to keep Shabbat seriously, for them to learn the lesson that you can't, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's disgusting and you can't have sexual relations in public, to keep that which should be private, private. Um, and that's really the purpose. That's what they're trying to teach them, to teach them the purpose They even though they violated, they went against what the Torah had to say initially, but it ultimately it was for the purpose of um, teaching them a lesson. That is all case number two. And again, that now concludes our discussion on uh, this big discussion on when or if uh, could the rabbis create a law that goes against the Torah. So again, just a very quick review is that we had four cases, essentially. One is when it's passive. One is when it's ultimately to bring them closer to, uh, to the Torah. It's for them to learn a lesson and uh, to bring them closer to the Torah. Case number three is that if it's similar to the Torah, that's also a vague way of putting it, but it's, uh, it's, it's something which is uh, similar uh, to the Torah, so then it would be allowed. And case number four is when it's Hefker, Bez and Hefker, when we're dealing with monetary issues, so then there's a special power that the rabbis have when it comes to monetary issues. Okay, just a few more lines in the Gemara, and then we'll conclude the Gemara for this week's staff. The Gemara now is going back to the Mishnah of all these different ramifications. What happens if you have one witness who said the husband died, she went ahead and remarried, and then the first husband comes back. So what happens? So the Mishnah said, <speaking in Hebrew> essentially the first husband nor the second husband, they can't, if they're Kohanim, they have no right to become uh, impure to bury the wife. For the second husband, it makes sense because they were never married. What about the first husband? So the Gemara says, <speaking in Hebrew> That you're only allowed to go to your to your relative, i.e., your wife, you're allowed to become impure as a Kohen, you're allowed to become impure to bury your own wife, you have an obligation to bury your wife. But the verse also says that there's a, there's a we expand, a, a, we, we explain the verse uh, to say that, um, to say. that there are certain husbands where they could become impure, certain husbands where they cannot become impure. If your wife, again, this is all for Kohanim, so if your wife is kasher, you're supposed to be married to your wife, stay married to your wife, so then you have an obligation to marry your wife and then you can become impure even if you are a Kohen. However, if it's an ishta psula that really you can't stay married and since we're dealing with a Kohen, so even for a Kohen, you can't stay married to, to this wife because this wife even though it was against her will and she didn't even know about it, but in the end of the day, she committed a, uh, the act of adultery. So for the Kohanim, they're not allowed to stay married because specifically for the Kohanim, because even if it was under duress and without knowing about it, uh, so then it would still be viewed as disqualified. And therefore, since she's an ishto psula, even though he never really gave her a get, the divorce document yet, he would not be—he's not allowed to uh, bury her, and he cannot become impure as a result of that. Okay, that's one. Uh, another ramification that applies if the husband comes back. Another one. Both the first husband and the second husband in general, they benefit from the wife in the sense that uh, whatever she finds then goes back to the husband in terms of monetary issues. If she finds something, the husband now owns it. But we don't say that in this case. The second husband doesn't surely doesn't own anything that she finds because they were never actually married. What about the first husband? The reason, the whole reason why we say on a rabbinic level that the husband uh, should acquire anything that she finds is so that there's no fighting between them. We don't want to have any fighting between them. We don't want him to get all upset that she found something and it's all hers. And so therefore we say that, you know what, uh, give, it, uh, give it to the husband and she also gets other things in return. Uh, but so that there's no fighting there's no anger in the home. We want Shalom bias, But over here, we want them to be upset with each other. Why? We want to make sure that they actually get divorced. We're trying to create an incentive where they are getting divorced. How are we going to create an incentive for them to get divorced? By saying that he does not get whatever she finds. Finally, uh, two more. But in addition to this, uh, the first husband and the second husband, they do not get anything that she makes. Not just what she finds, but anything that uh, she makes for a living, any, any salary that she has doesn't go back to the husband, even though in general it does. Why is it that on a rabbinic level we say that anything that she makes goes to the husband? Because the husband is responsible to take care of her and to feed her and to give her that which she needs. And so therefore as a result of that we say that anything she makes goes back to, on, a, on, a, anything that, on a rabbinic level. Anything that she, that she makes goes back to uh, her husband. But in this case it's not true. He has no obligation to support her. He's not supposed to support her. They're supposed to get divorced, and as a result of that, we'll say that anything that she makes stays with her. It doesn't go to the husband. Last ramification here for this week's recording, he also cannot annul her vows. In general, a husband is allowed to annul his wife's vows, assuming, A, it's a vow that impacts both him and her, so then he has the right to annul that vow, and, Number two is if it causes her some sort of pain, pain or anguish, um, or discomfort, if it causes her discomfort, even if it doesn't necessarily impact him, but if it causes her discomfort and she takes some sort of vow, uh, which will cause her discomfort, the the husband has the right to, to annul that. We say, but not in this case. The first husband, second husband, they don't have the ability to annul her vows. Second husband, I understand, because he's not really a husband. What about the first husband? Why can't he annul her vows? The whole reason why the Torah said, even on a biblical level, the whole reason why the Torah said that the husband has the right to annul her vows is to make sure that she is still uh, favorable in his eyes. That if she's causing pain to herself, so then she's not going to be favorable in his eyes anymore. If it's going to impact him, she won't be favorable in his eyes anymore. She just took a, a, a vow that impacts him. So therefore, as a result of that, we say that, in general, we'll say that he has the right to annul the vows because, it, because uh, otherwise, she wouldn't find she might not be able to find favor in his eyes. But over here, in this case, discana versus discana. In this case, we don't want him to stay married to his wife. We want them to get divorced. So she has no right to annul the vows in this case. He wouldn't be allowed to annul the vows because we. It's even better if uh, he he doesn't like her because they're supposed to get divorced. Again, this is between the first one, the husband and the wife. Those are all the examples that are mentioned in this Gemara. In the next Gemara, next week's staff, we'll discuss uh, the other various uh, ramifications to what happens if the husband does return back. But again, we concluded also this major topic about when do the rabbis have the right uh, to create a certain law which goes against the Torah.